It all started with a very simple idea. Tell the stories of how successful middle market CEOs made it to the corner office. I'm Brand Handley, founder and managing director of Resource Options International, or ROI. We're the USA's premier executive search firm focused exclusively on empowering middle market companies to attract, hire, and retain A players while transforming top executives' careers and lives. ROI's Into the Corner office is dedicated to discovering how middle market CEOs advance their career, and we're making these remarkable and sometimes quite unbelievable stories available to you for the very first time. Listen and learn about the challenges they've overcome, the interesting people they've met along the way, and the lessons learned that steered these executives' unique journey into a middle market corner office of their own. I know you enjoy these CEO stories as much as I've enjoyed recording them. So thank you for listening today. And if you like what you've heard, rate us on iTunes or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm looking forward to you joining me on the next great middle market CEO adventure into the corner office. Today, my guest is CEO Paul D'Amico. Paul joined NAFNAF Grill as CEO in June of 17, bringing more than 35 years of food service experience to this role. His love for culinary arts began working in his dad catering business at a young age, washing dishes and preparing food. Paul attended Johnson and Wales University, earning degrees in culinary arts and hotel restaurant management. Paul D'Amico, welcome into the corner office. Thanks for having me. Great to have you here. You know, we always like to kind of start with the early years, and uh, you've got such a deep bio. I'd like to kind of capture how that all began, and maybe you can just tell us a little bit about growing up and what was your family like, and and what part of the country you did uh, uh, w- were you raised? Yeah, I uh, I, w- I was born in Long Island, New York, um, and I am one of uh, six children. Um, you know, my dad, my mom was a stay home uh, mom and my dad, uh, was a cost analyst for Grumman aerospace. Um, and he, he was with that company for 40 years. Uh, wow. he worked on, Did they have a he, plant out in Long Island? Was that where he was based? Yeah, it was, uh, Grumman was the, was the largest single largest employer on Long Island. Um, and, and my, my dad started there. I, I think he started there in the, in the sixties. Um, and he was, he, 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 he was a cost analyst on the F-14, which was the which was the which was the number one fighter jet that the U.S. had in their arsenal back at that time. Oh, it was for many many years. Yeah, but you know we had six kids. Um, and, <laughs> Where were you in the pecking order? I was number three. Okay, uh, right in the middle. And I, so, so I have four sisters and I have a brother. Um, and and my dad needed to work part time, and so every Friday night, all day Saturday and Sunday, my dad. Uh, was a maitre d um, in a catering establishment out in out in eastern Long Island, in the Miller Place Inn, it was called uh, at the time, and and that's that's really how I started to cut my teeth because I I was dragged there in the early years as as a tenth <laughs> as a tenth grader and an eleventh grader when there were really no labor laws or minimum wage, uh, and and I would work every Friday night. I would I would do a wedding on Fridays. I would do two weddings on Saturdays, and I would do a wedding on Sunday, and I did that. Throughout my entire tenth, eleventh, and twelfth grade. And now, I, were you paid for that, or was that considered room and board? No, I was. I was. <laughs> I, I was paid. I think I was paid like two dollars an hour. <laughs> right, that sounds about about the right wage back then. You know, but I learned. But I, what I learned at such a young age is is that what what a tip was. Yeah, and, and right. you, you learn you learn to work really hard and make brides very happy and. <laughs> and, and you and you got rewarded at the end of that event, and that was the most amazing thing for me. 
Yeah. So customer service skills were developed early on. So I, I was I was so ahead of my time for for dealing with what I was dealing with. Um, I mean, I as as a tenth grader, I was in, involved in alcohol and I was involved with kitchen equipment. You know, things you know most people don't even get to experience in their entire life. But and I and I well, was involved with group. alcohol as a high schooler, of course, has a very different meaning for most of us. <laughs> I think and you're referring I, I to managing it. Right? Yes, I, I, I did that too, of course. But 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 I, I was a kid in a grown ups world, uh, and everybody that I worked with was in their in their thirties and forties and fifties, and these Double were your age or more. The yeah. way and I, and I and I just I I, I think I, I think I matured Fit in. Um, faster than most most kids my age that would that were worrying about you know finals. In tenth grade, so mom was mom was stay at home. Dad had kind of the side business. Who were some of the other early influencers in your life? You know, I would say that the owner of um, the owner of the Miller Place Inn owned a couple of restaurants in town, and and I, I, I just uh, everything everything this guy touched. And I'm you know I'm talking about back in the in the mid seventies, really early eighties. Um, I, I I watched him run five different restaurants in town, and everything he touched turned to gold. And I. You know what you learn is that he, it was because of the food, right? Every everybody's everybody's got their favorite dive, but this this guy ran such incredible high volume um, food quality restaurants that I was I was a bit enamored with it. I couldn't wait to get to work. Interesting, you know, on yeah. a Friday night. What were some of the lessons other than obviously delivering good food and you know making people have that enjoyable experience? What were some of the other things you learned from him? Gotta, I mean, people are coming. People are coming to his uh, restaurants, or or brides are coming to his facility, um, and and our goal has always been to make them happy. Yeah. Um, and because there would no, nobody marketed those restaurants like we we have to market our restaurants today, and it was word of mouth. And if you know if a if a bride told the, the, the community that she had an amazing event there, she always mentioned the food. But if she mentioned the service, it was something that always brought more people back. Booked them out through the spring, I'm sure. Mm-hmm. Years, years, I mean, years in advance, and it's still like that today. But, but more so because there's less places to get married. But if you wanted a quality, a place that was known for their quality of service and food, you were three years booked out. Well, Paul, it sounds like your weekends were pretty busy with uh, your early food and beverage experience. Tell us a little bit about your student life. Uh, you know, were you a good student, kind of middle of the road, uh, struggling at school in your early years? You know, I would say, uh, I would say that I was a solid B student. Um, I, you know, I, I got good grades. I didn't get great grades. Uh, I had a, I had a couple of very close, um, friends that I'm still very close with today. And, and those, those two guys were, you know, they were a pluses, right? They were Dean's list. And I, you know, I just, I just wasn't there. Uh, and so I was a solid, I was a solid B student all throughout high school. Um, but when I got to college and I got uh, my, my first year of, of college was purely in the kitchen. Um, I was an A student. Oh, Absolutely. Really? Turn it on then. Yeah. I just, well, you I were just, studying something you loved, right? That has I, a I, was, big I was studying something I loved and I, I, I was, it was also very, very practical. So I had a knife in my hand every day, right? And I was, <laughs> I was make, I was making something. And then, and, and it's, you know, when you get done with your, 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 whether it's garmage or soup or Asian, whatever, whatever class we were in at the end of the, at the end of the class, you got to see what you did and people actually ate your food. And so there was, there was a level of satisfaction there that I never got from getting a good grade on a test. What about uh, outside of class? Again, back to junior and high school, any sports, music, theater, any other pursuits? Did you have time for anything else? 
I, I, I always made time for sports. Um, I was, uh, I played soccer, um, ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th. And I, and I played lacrosse ninth, 10th, 11th, and 12th. And then I picked up lacrosse again, um, in my freshman year of college. Um, and I, it's just a sport that I, that I love. And then you know, it's, it's, yeah. it's interesting because after college, you know, you get into work and I didn't play lacrosse again for probably 20 years. Uh, and then when I started that company, uh, in LA called food brand, I, I started, I got involved with coaching a youth team because nobody would, right? That's usually the way it happens. And, well, and lacrosse I got, really I, isn't a West Coast sport either. No, so and sure I was, was getting I was started. Part of, I was part of the team bringing it out there. So that was, that was an amazing, uh, amazing opportunity and amazing time for me because I actually started to play in a 30 and over league. And then I played in a 40 and over league. And then I played in a 50 over league. And then you have to stop <laughs> because if you get hurt, you can't go to work. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> the risks involved. So I've stayed, if, I've stayed involved in that sport almost, you know, for the, for the better part of my life. Yeah. Good sport. Good sport. But what about entrepreneurial things? Obviously, again, the catering business would give you a lot of spending money. The tips made a difference, but you know, anything else younger on um, in your younger years, uh, you know, did you have a paper route? Did you sell things at Christmas time? Were there other kind of entrepreneurial things that you did growing up? I mean, the, I mean, the only other thing that I did that I could consider entrepreneurial was in 11th grade. I had a penny saver route. I don't know if you remember what that oh, is. Oh, sure. But, Absolutely. We had know, that in we, our area. Yeah. We, we, penny saver. They would drop the papers off. They would drop the ba- bags off and you had to stuff the bags and get them out by 6 a.m. And, and, and I, I did that for one summer and I hated it. <laughs> you got other customer service experiences, yeah. right? Didn't yeah. need to go and collect on that. So moved on to college. Obviously, you chose something you loved. And, you know, that's a that's a real, you know, consistent message we hear a lot from other CEOs. Uh, did you pick Johnson & Wales because of their food uh uh, and background? I mean, was it a foregone conclusion you were going to go to college? I'm assuming dad likely had a degree, right, working at Grumman, or or was he more of a, you know, did he kind of come up through the vocational No, he, had a, he, had, he, was, uh, he was in the Army for years, and he had, he had an associate's degree in, in economics. Got it, got it. And mom, did she go to college? My mom did not go to college. Uh, so older the, brothers the, and sisters, were you the first one to kind of? No, my sis, my, I have two sis, my two older sisters both went to college. They're both in the medical industry. And then um, the third, the fourth, the fifth, and the sixth are all in the hospitality uh, industry. So oh, three, really? Got three, it. Of, oh, three, of, three of us went to Johnson & Wales. Nice. So, so did they all go kind of work for dad in the catering thing on the weekend or was that? Okay. No, they did. They didn't. They never, they never, the, the rest of the family never got involved with that. Interesting. Huh? So anyway, so it was kind of your love, uh, meeting this restaurateur working for dad that led you to pick that university because of their, their restaurant and, and food, uh, Best service background? You know, I wouldn't even say that I picked it. I would say that my father picked it. Yeah, okay, um, got it. And 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 he said, "This is this is where I think you should go." And we went up one weekend. We took the ferry over to, to Connecticut and drove up, and we visited the school. And I, I, I when I saw those institutional kitchens, uh, <laughs> I, I, I said, "I guess this." And all the and everything else with it. <laughs> I said, "I guess this is for me." Uh, awesome. And and uh, and and I went. Um, and then Did your dad? Out, let's talk a little bit about that. Did your dad kind of see something in you? What 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 do you think kind of led him to believe that this was the right path down your road? I had you? to. I have to believe that he saw something in me. I mean, he. I mean, I was. I was viewed. Looking back, I was viewed by him and that entire restaurant organization as as just this hard worker that that was always going the extra yard, you know, when, when they were 500 pounds of dishes to hump up the stairs, I was the guy that <laughs> grabbed it and, and ran them up. 
Uh, and so, you know, I was, I was, I was kind of the go-to guy, which, which, which in the early days in 10th grade, I was a dish, I was a dishwasher and I made coffee and I made coffee and I loaded trucks and I took out trash. And that's why by the time I was a senior, I was actually cooking for these weddings. And that is that to this day, I look back on that and that still blows my mind that really, that I could be seven, 16 or 17 years old responsible for a, a wedding that people are paying tens of thousands of dollars for. And and you mentioned uh, your willingness to <laughs> lug 500 pounds of dishes. Were you the kind of guy that kind of raised your hand or would do anything? I mean, ha- ha- can you tell us a little bit about your attitude on that job? Because it's hard work. I-, I did catering work when I was in college. I think, I'd like you, I did it for about six months and said, this is it. <laughs> I'm out of it. But, uh, you know, what was your attitude? You know, kind of... Uh, did I just, I, I love the work. I love the work. I was always the first one there. I was always the last one to leave. Um, but I, but I was also known as the guy that, that liked to play as hard as he worked. Right. So that's, <laughs> that's something that followed, has followed me my entire career. And it's something that, that I still, if you could say teach or mentor that to the teams that I lead, we're going to work hard, but we're also going to play just as hard. And it's not just work and go home. It's, you know, I, I have I have certain things that I have layered into my career that are important to me that I that I teach other people. And you know, Happy Hour Thursdays is one that every company I've led, people are enamored with. That they look forward to Thursday and getting out of here at three thirty and going to a bar and let's let's have a social hour. Uh, and so that's that's something that you learn at a very that a very at a very young age because all of those people that I was around that were adults, they would party hard after a wedding. They they. That you know, they'd break out the beer and they'd start drinking, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm not even the legal drinking age yet, but they're handing me Budweisers. <laughs> right, right, cool. So uh, went on to college, uh, great uh, uh, education there. Did your four years? What was that first job that you took uh, coming out, and why? My first job out of college. Out of college, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I was recruited on campus at that at that time back in the eighties. Um, you know, Marriott was the gold standard. Right, Every, of course. You know, when 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 the when all of the uni- when all of the businesses came on on campus to recruit, uh, the the line at the Marriott. Yeah, they were the gold. It was always the longest, right? There was nobody at Hilton. There was nobody at Hyatt. <laughs> um, and so I got recruited while I I think I think we had another three months left in the year. And so I knew I was going uh, to work for Marriott. I just didn't know where or what role. Um, and then after graduation, um, right right in the middle of the summer, uh, I was notified that I would be working in the airport division. And I had no idea what the airport division was. I thought I was going to work in a hotel behind a front desk, blue blazer, red tie, wingtips, the whole thing. <laughs> and my first job was yeah. My oh. first job was out of college was uh, uh, an assistant manager. Uh, in the JFK International Arrivals Building. And that sounds really sexy, but I ran snack bars. Um, <laughs> right. And I served the best nachos and the best hot dogs to, to every passenger that would, that would buy it. And I, again, it was, I, was, I felt like I was back in high school and I was running kegs you know, down the concourse and I was serving hot dogs. And I, again, I was known as, I became known very quickly by the leadership team within that terminal um, that, that, this this is a rising star, and I was told that, uh, which 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 allows you when when you become that person, when you show that you care, whether it's serving hot dogs or serving Chateaubriand, if you give it your all, you get no, you get recognized, and, and and when you get noticed, opportunities are brought your way. And so while I was this ter- this terminal operation was a very sophisticated 
There were 35 snack bars and bars. There was fine dining. There were buffet restaurants. There were staff canteens. And I got to play in every aspect of the, of the institutional food service business while I was in that terminal. Purchasing, receiving. At, at 20 years old, 22 years old. 20, 21 years old. Uh, and so, you know, I, I, I was at JFK for, for about a year. Uh, I was then asked to go to Newark on a special project to help fix things there. Then I was asked to go to LaGuardia, fix things there. And then my opportunity really came about, and I was asked to relocate to Boston. And I said, wow, this is, I've hit the big time. I'm going to go be, <laughs> you know, a general manager of one of the terminals, uh, which my, my wife and I were just getting married. We, we got married, and our honeymoon return flight went to Boston. So that's, we started our lives together in, in, in Boston. And I, you know, I ran terminals there. And then I got relocated to, to Washington, Dulles Airport, and I ran the airport concessions there. And then I was asked to move to Bethesda, the Golden Palace of Marriott. Uh, and <laughs> well, I, before we get there, a couple of early questions. Yeah, sure. Did, did they move you into leadership right away? In other words, were you managing people from day one? Did you start more as an individual contributor? Tell us a little bit about that evolution. No, out of out of the gate, I was I was not managing people. I was I was I was managing concessions. Um, but so when I, did you move into that leadership role? Was it during this transition from terminal to terminal and airport to airport? It, it was when I first. Um, it was when I first moved to when they relocated me to Boston. Boston, got it. So, so the special projects work. I was not managing people, uh, but when I was moved to Boston, I was managing six supervisors and an administrative role, and so that's when I really started to to feel responsible for you know, people's careers. Yeah. What do you remember about that first time you started managing people? Um, it, I didn't, I didn't enjoy it at first because there were so many different personalities. Uh, there were some hard workers, there were, there were some lazy people. Um, and that, that the whole lazy thing was never in my realm. So it's, you know, I needed, I needed some coaching from my supervisor on how to deal with that. And, and again, I was, I was afforded all of the, those kinds of luxuries of one-on-one -on -one time with my boss where I could really have an open conversation about how to deal with somebody. And that's really where all that started to happen. I did, it's, not, it's not something that they taught me at Johnson & Wales, right? They, didn't, they, don't te they don't teach you how to deal with people and challenges with human beings. What were some of the best or worst lessons you've learned from some of the bosses you've had, uh, particularly during those earlier years at Marriott, Host Marriott? Yeah, I mean, when I, my, my bosses were, were tough. I mean, they were screamers. <laughs> uh, they were, they were desk pounders. Um, I mean, they, they really thought they could move the business by being loud and obnoxious. Uh, but I, I, I was able to roll with the punches, um, and, and get, and get the job done. But they, you know, over time they became my advocates. Uh, but I, you know, you always watch from the sidelines and they would all the new blood that was constantly coming in over time. You could see that they would be pounding the desks and screaming people to see if they could actually deal in this in this kind of high paced uh high sales volume um volatile concession business where where there's no americans eating the food there nobody speaks english and it's a very difficult um, piece of business to run what were some of the lessons that you learned during those early management years when you were you know obviously running an organization had those direct reports i i, I think i still do it to this today um uh, but write everything down um when you, you know, when you're, when you're, when the terminal manager is, you know, calls you and, you know, there's no cell phones back then. So it's on a phone. They have got to find you. 
uh, and they're screaming into the phone and, and they're screaming, get up to the office. And I'm you know, running up to the office. I always made time to stop and get my pad and my pen and get up to the office because I knew it was going to be a volatile situation because that's how I got invited to the situation. <laughs> and, and I've always wrote down um, what was said and what I needed to do. Uh, and, I, and to this day, I mean, I, today I do it on my iPhone, right? I use, the, I use the Notes app more than probably any other app. Uh, because it's always there for me to go back to. Paul, how would you say your leadership's evolved over time? I have become the opposite of my early bosses. Really? Interesting. Yeah. I, yeah. Mean, I, I think if you lined up 10 people that have worked for me over the years, I think they would tell you things like, we feared you, but in a very calm kind of way. Um, because I'm not a screamer. I never have been a screamer. I went through that, that war. And came out of that the other side, learning from that, saying, I'm not. So you I'm never adapted to... those approaches. You no, were able to maintain no. that. Mm -hmm. Yeah. No, because as, as the years, you know, as, as the, as the years pass by, you know, HR became more and more ingrained in everybody's head about how to deal with people. And today it's this, today it's 20 X what it was back then. Right. You can't look at the, you can't look the wrong way. You can't touch the wrong <laughs> way. You can't talk the wrong way. And so I really, I started to understand that. Um, and I really felt that by holding people, setting the goal and holding people, people accountable for the work that had to get done and then rewarding them in the best way possible, they really learned to respect that type of leadership. And, you know, if there's, if there's probably, if you said to me, what is the one thing you want to tell us? I would tell you that I learned to be a servant leader. And I, and, I, and, I, and I learned that early on. And so whether that was me cleaning up the table after a staff meeting and today in the boardroom, when the, you know, when the board meeting is over and I've completed my tasks and everybody gets up and leaves, I'm still to this day cleaning the cups and coffee cups and carrying the dishes. I don't, I don't need an admin to come in and do that. I don't need the cleaning crew. I can clean the coffee cups if everybody else is too lazy to do that. And so I bring that to everything that I do. Paul, it's interesting you say that, that concept of servant leadership's uh, been expressed in a number of the podcasts we've done. And it's everything from, you know, I'm at the bottom of the pyramid, you know, I serve everyone else to how you've expressed it. Wh where did you see that modeled? Was that back in the catering business? Was that something that dad, you know, had communicated with you? You know, where did you kind of get the feeling that that was the right approach? You know, I think I, I think that came, um, I wouldn't say that that was, I wouldn't say that that was my father. My, my father always had people around him and he was, he was, uh, he was, he was like running an orchestra. Right. right? So, he was so the he conductor. Never, he was the conductor. He never lifted anything, but he always knew what needed to be lifted and always had a group of people there willing to lift for him. Um, so maybe, maybe that was the, maybe that was the beginning of it. Uh, but through my career, um, you know, when you, when you spend 14 years with, with a company like Marriott and you learn everything that you can about the food service business, and then the entrepreneurial bug bites you and you go out on your own and you have nothing but a laptop and an office, you are doing everything. You are, you, you are ordering the office supply. You are doing your own flights. You are making your own expense reports. There's nobody around you. So that's really where that started. And I would say that it, it came full on uh, after I left Marriott because you know in Marriott there's always people to do things. Well, you know, it's, uh, you know, you mentioned Marriott and a wonderful organization. I had the pleasure of meeting Bill. Um, gosh, about a year or two ago, we were at a conference together, and I sat right up front. He was one of the speakers, 
And, you know, he really impressed me as someone who probably also believes in that servant leadership. Was it exhibited at all there at Host Marriott? Did you feel that in some of the bosses you uh, had worked for, see that type of behavior? No. I not so not, much. Not, <laughs> no. It didn't trickle down. <laughs> it, it really, it, it, I mean, I, I think that what Bill, what, what Bill was really good at, and whether he was touring the airline hangar or, or touring a five-star hotel, what Bill was good at was was touching and and connecting with the hourly workforce. Yeah, yeah. He was, he was revered when he showed up at the property. Whether you were cutting vegetables or sweeping the floor, everybody stopped to almost bow as he walked down the hallway, and he commanded that respect because it was a service led organization. Right, right. You take care of the guests, and they'll take care of you. You know the basics. Um, I wouldn't I wouldn't say it was servant leadership. Uh, but, but, but that good, could, that, good that, connecting that, with people, yeah. great connecting. But one thing that, I mean, you could, you could call it, um, servant leadership. One thing Bill always did was he was always the first one to pick up the cigarette butt or the piece of trash or the napkin on the floor. Uh, and so that's, that, that, that manifests itself in servant leadership when, when employees see that. Let's talk a little bit about company culture. Um, you know, you worked for couple of great organizations and then obviously went into smaller organizations, some that you founded your own, others that you've joined. But what are your thoughts on building a company culture, Paul? It's, it's, it's one of the, I think it's one of the most difficult things to do. Uh, and I'm experiencing it now with this, with this startup um, that I'm part of, but you know, sometimes you've been there just about a year or just barely just, a year, right? Ju- just a year. Uh, and it's a, it's a young organization, but I don't. I don't. I, I believe that the. I believe that the leader or the CEO um, is responsible for, for setting that strategy. Like culture is important. Let's all believe that culture is important. There may not be a culture somewhere today, but let's all agree that culture is important and that we all play a role in what that means. And that culture, you know, that culture can can be, you know, work hard, play hard. That that culture can be teamwork. Um, you know, one of the things I, I've always found helpful is to is to put things on the walls that talk about how the culture can start to evolve. So today in in my organization here, we have this, we, we've created this thing called the designed alliance, right? And all that means is this is how we're going to work together. We're going to respect each other. We're going to have extreme candor. We're going to have trust and, and we're going to, we're going to be present. Those are the, those are the attributes of how we're going to work together. And that's, that's the building block of, of, of a culture. Um, and, and, you know, when you, when you all agree, and we, we did this as a team, we brought in a consultant, we spent two days off site. we talked about what culture meant, but when you say things like you have to be okay with extreme candor, that's, that's easy to put on a poster. That is really difficult when someone stands <laughs> in really front of you, right? And, and <laughs> right, someone stands right. up in a room and they go, "You're a silent liar." That's <laughs> no <laughs> what? <laughs> so, 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 and it. But I think it's for a company that's a startup like the one I'm Absolutely. in now. It's yeah. it's the way you start. It's when you join an organization that's been there for years and has and has had culture shifts over the years that it's that it's that it's very difficult. Um, it, it changes over time. Let's shift a little bit to about, you know, kind of bringing people on board. Paul, what do you look for when you're making bets on the people you invest in? There's one thing, there's one thing that I always do, no matter what organization I'm in and no matter what role I have. If I, if I am part of the, uh, 
if I am part of the interview process, I am going to meet every single person that gets interviewed in this organization, right? So whether that's the, 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 the admin or the, or the accounts payable clerk, um, and, and I, I do that for one reason. I do that to tell a quick story. I want, I want to see how they interact with me. I want to see if they're nervous around me because I don't want people nervous around me. But I, but I meet with them for 15 minutes and I just tell a quick story. And that story is the company that I've built here is a sandbox to me. And, the, and there's only two things that can happen in that sandbox, right? And so I want you to close your eyes and I want you to think about being on the beach and I want you to think about a sand area. You can build beautiful sandcastles together or someone can come in and start kicking sand around. And I said, if you are a sandcastle builder, you will have a great career here and we are open and we are transparent and you will come talk to me whenever you want. If we find out that you're kicking sand in people's faces, it's okay that's just you, but we're just going to tap you on the shoulder and say, thanks for coming. Doesn't mean we don't like you. Doesn't mean we don't respect you, but this is not the place for you. So we're going to just send you on your way. And I think people really in their mind's eye can picture that happening if they're not going to give 110%. So you're looking for builders. Absolutely. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And, and if you only have a few minutes with someone, do you go through that scenario or is there other nice, other questions that you like to ask and try to get at that, uh, you know, that cultural acceptance, I guess, is the best way to describe it. I, I, I always like to just ask one question, and it was, tell me what you hated about your last job, right? And I just, I don't want to know what you liked, because you'll make something up, right? I really, I really want to catch you a little off guard and say, what, what didn't you like about it? Because I want to make sure we don't have that here if you're going to join this team, right? I want to flush it out, and that's, and that's all part of being really transparent. And that's really hard to do in an interview when you're when you're the accounts payable clerk that you're you're interviewing for and the CEO wants to meet with you, you get nervous. And I'm trying to break down those barriers. Paul D'Amico, you've been very, very generous with your time. We do have one last question that we ask all the uh, CEOs that join us. What kind of career or life advice would you give to someone who's got their own eyes on the corner office? Uh, be that person that um, does something in your in your job or in your day or in your in whatever career you're in now, whatever level you're in now. Be that person that gets recognized. Be that person because there's a sea of, of of there's a sea of vanilla out there, <laughs> and 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 so what are, what are you going to do? Um, what are you going to do so that the leadership team sees you? Because everybody's looking for great people, right? Because every company, there's very few companies are stagnant. Very every company wants to grow, and they need future leaders. They don't just show up. And so what is that thing that you're going to do to, to raise people's eyes, to get, to get the, the executive leadership team talking about you, regardless of what level in the organization you are? Paul, thank you once again. We've really enjoyed hearing your story of your journey into the corner office. Thanks for having me. Thank you for listening to Into the Corner Office with Brant Hanley. We hope you enjoyed hearing our guest CEO story as much as we did. If you want to hear more CEOs reveal their journey into the corner office, please subscribe via iTunes and tell your friends and colleagues. For more information about Brant, Resource Options International, and the mighty middle market, visit www.goforroi.com. We look forward to having you join us for our next episode.